Happy Resurrection Sunday! (laughs) It is good to be together on this day. Um, Thank you to those of you who are on Zoom. Good morning to you as well. So, um, my name is Joel. I'm executive pastor here in this today, and it's good to see you all. Today, today is a commemoration and a celebration. And it's not just that, but it's actually a celebration of the most important thing, <laughs> the most important news, the most important reality. Not just, not just a truth or an idea or a nice sentiment, but it really is a commemoration of the good news of the reality that we all live in, the good news, the most fundamental good news, the most important news in the history of your life, of my life, of our life as a family, of our world, and at the risk of sounding grandiose, it's actually the most important news of the whole cosmos. That news, of course, is that Jesus is, is alive. Jesus died, but he is not dead. Jesus died, he was laid in that tomb, but he is not in that tomb today. He's not there right now. He walked out. He walked out fully alive, fully alive to God. And as the Apostle Paul says, we, you, me, us, we can be united to him both in that death and in that resurrection. And in that uniting, we can experience full new life right now because he is risen. There you go, good. We get a fun with this. This is a celebration, right? We're not very like call and response church, but when I say for he is risen or he is risen, you say he is risen indeed. So he is risen. He is risen indeed. There we go. We're getting there. All right. So I worry a little bit um, that this idea, what I just said, he is risen. I worry sometimes that this is so familiar to us, uh, becomes so repeated, so commonplace even, that it suffers from what Dallas Willard calls the lullaby effect. Um, or in other words, we hear it so much it kind of fades, gets dulled into background noise that lulls us to sleep rather than waking us up. And man, if that's true, that's a tragedy. Because the news that Jesus is risen, that he is alive, that, that proclamation should actually really, it should actually unsettle us, it should provoke us, it should invite us to believe. It should invite us to stake all of our hopes on that. It, it, it should not let us just sit in comfort, actually. That's the one thing it should not do. Because it should be, the mo- well, like I said, it should be the most important thing about us, about our history, about our world, about our life. It should be the most defining thing that you ever actually hear. Because what hope would we have? Just think about this. This is what I want to encourage us to do this morning. What hope would we have otherwise? Truly. If Jesus is still dead, if Jesus is still in that tomb, what hope on a deep, deep level, what hope would we have? If death is another way to think about it, if death really is the end, if death if death is really the last word, if death gets the final say, what hope would we have? What what what's the point? So in in a few minutes, we're gonna look at a text from the Apostle Paul who wrote so beautifully about resurrection in so many places. But in a moment, before we do, before we do that, I want to spend some time unwinding this and getting back what, I, what I, I hope to get back to the unsettling, radical, joyous, paradigm-exploding, shocking, 
uh, reality of the fact that Jesus is alive. I want to get back to that. I want to meditate. I want to sit on that for a bit. And to do that, I want to engage in something that historians call a counterfactual. Um, I want us to, in other words, I want us to imagine something together. I want us to imagine, imagine this counterfactual. What if Jesus had not actually risen from the dead? I want to spend a few minutes on this. So let your imagination go there as I, as I tell this story. But imagine a world in which Jesus had not, had not walked out of the tomb. Imagine that terrible and confusing and dark Friday has already come and gone. And the disciples of Jesus have either scattered, run away, or are huddled together behind locked doors out of fear. Because, of course, their leader, the revolutionary who went one week earlier, one week before this, had been paraded into the capital city amid crowds and shouts of Hosanna, that leader, one week later, was betrayed and pushed through a rust sham of a trial and executed by the oppressive Roman Empire. And not only that, but the religious leaders in the capital city, in the temple, the the religious leaders of the Jews themselves conspired with the pagan oppressive empire, that empire who does not recognize or even know God, They conspired together to kill him. And some who were there even heard Jesus himself shout, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right before he died. And now he's dead. So what what does that mean? What now? The disciples wait after that a full day, because of course it was the Sabbath. They were not supposed to work anyways, but it was certainly the worst Sabbath that any of them had ever experienced still recovering from the shock of all these events, some of the disciples are still grappling with the reality that Jesus really actually is dead and really is gone. Peter, in particular, is in anguish over his brazen betrayal of his rabbi right before he died, his public betrayal. He can't, he can't forgive himself for it. After that long and dark and difficult Sabbath, the very next morning, around dawn, some of the women who are followers of Jesus, visited his resting place at Joseph's tomb. This is, of course, a tradition among the Jews because the body was supposed to wait for three days before being relocated for its permanent burial. The women were the only ones courageous enough to show their faces near his resting place. They brought spices to cover the scent of decay that surely had started settling in. And after this, they they come back to Jesus' disciples, his disciples who are still huddled, fearful in a room, And the women's faces were downcast as they explained that the guards who were posted around his tomb allowed them a brief visit to apply the spices to his body. And they explained that his body would indeed be moved to an ossuary once the traditional three-day window had passed. And in the course of explaining all this, it felt like another wave of the reality set in. He really was gone. All those healings, all those radical and stirring sermons, the crowds the uh, casting out of demons, even the parties, the traveling, all of it just starts to kind of fade into a blur. It feels like a dream. The men start to trickle back to their livelihoods. Some of them go back to fishing. Some go back to their families. Some start families. At least one goes back to collecting taxes. 
And at least another maintains his revolutionary zeal against the oppressors, the Romans, but now with more fervor and, and anger at both the Roman oppressors and the Jewish religious elite who so unjustly killed his friend and his teacher. Now, a few of the most devoted followers of Jesus do compile his most compelling, what they see as his most compelling ethical teachings. Peter does not count himself among them because he's still so stricken with grief, he just simply wants to put this chapter behind him as quickly as possible. Similarly, James, uh, Jesus' own brother, grows up thinking that Jesus was just deluded. He stays a faithful, devout Jew, but tries to distance himself from the legacy of his, what he sees as his crazy brother. He just avoids any trouble with the Romans. But a few others do compile parts of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the sayings, like, turn the other cheek, don't seek revenge. If God sees the sparrow, surely he sees you, and others. And they circulate these teachings among the Jews, among the devout. And the ethics are indeed compelling to some. And as a result, some Jews decide they really do want to live like Jesus, and they try to do that. A zealous Pharisee named Paul occasionally seeks these followers out to persecute them because he sees them as uh, diluting and diverting people from the true Jewish life. But honestly, mostly Paul ignores them because they aren't really very influential. He finds other impure movements to target. His energy's on, he stays focused on that, and he never writes any letters. More Jewish Messiah figures uh, start showing up. They come in waves. Each one calls disciples, gathers crowds, marches on Jerusalem, declares the kingdom of God is upon them, and each one is swiftly crushed and executed by Rome, just like Jesus was. And their followings all dissipate, just like Jesus' did. Centuries go by, and a very, very small sect within Judaism remains devoted to Jesus' teachings. But everyone who wants to become a follower of this Jesus is expected to convert fully to Judaism. Some Gentiles do, a few, but really not many. It remains a small and trivial religious movement. Those who even bother to notice it think it's a strange cult, but it's honestly largely ignored. Empires and governments rise and fall The Jews are persecuted and scatter into a diaspora around the globe. All the while, a very, very small minority of them remain committed to the teachings of this Jesus figure. You can find small enclaves of this very curious religion, religious sect, in scattered spots around the world. They have no noticeable impact on society or civilization at large. Indeed, if Jesus was not, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, That, or something similar to that, would be the story. It would be the story of our world of Christianity at large. If if Jesus was not, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we would be lost. We would be without hope in our world, as Paul says in one of his letters that we have. Without hope in our world. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we would not be in this room this morning. Most of us wouldn't know each other, probably. But I'm here. I stand in this spot, in this room this morning, on this Zoom call. (laughs) I'm here to tell you, my friends and family, that this is not what happened. This is not, decisively not what happened. No. God broke into history, broke into our world's history. And the only thing... The only thing more shocking and paradigm-wrecking 
then the fact that Jesus died on that cross is actually what happened afterwards. It's precisely what happened. The only thing that could have broken uh, the worldview of the followers of Jesus, even more than him dying, was the fact that he walked out alive. Jesus walked out of that tomb he was laid in. That morning when the women showed up, we, were, we had a sunrise service this morning. As the sun comes up, you can picture this. That morning, as they, they walked to the tomb, shortly after dawn, those women, Jesus walked out of that tomb alive. He walked out, and he walked towards those who betrayed him. He walked towards Peter and pronounced forgiveness and grace and restoration on him, who would go on to preach these sermons and really be the rock of the church. Jesus walked out of that tomb, and he walked towards Thomas, and he showed him his wounds, Jesus walked out of that tomb and invited belief. He appeared to Paul, that zealous Pharisee, and shattered his world, completely redirected his life. Jesus walked out of the tomb and he sent his spirit, his Holy Spirit, among his followers, those who had scattered and betrayed him. He sent his spirit among them, forgave them, restored them, and told them, go into all the world and speak of me, because he is risen. He is alive. This is Resurrection Sunday. It is a celebration of that. It's a reminder that this earth-shattering news that I just talked about, that, that death itself, think about this, death itself is not, it's not the strongest power in our world. Death itself is not the strongest power in your life or my life. Amen. We say that so much. We say that in religious Christian circles so much, but it, that, that should grab your soul this morning. Death is not the final thing over you. And evil itself, which wields death as a weapon, evil itself has been emptied out. It's been shown to be weak, to be sniveling, to be worthless in in the face of God's love and grace. And when we submit to death as though it is the last final thing, when we submit to it as though it's the most powerful thing, we're actually submitting ourselves to a lie when we do that, when we live that way. And I know that's easier said than done, trust me. But the truth is that the reality is that it's a lie. And listen, we only can know that, we can only have confidence in what I just said, that death, is, that death and evil have been emptied out. We can only have any confidence in that because Jesus walked out of the tomb. We can only know that with any confidence because the love of God that was revealed consummately and perfectly in Christ Jesus has broken this old way. C.S. Lewis calls it the old magic, the deep magic. Jesus walking out of that tomb opened up an entire new life, an entire new life with God that is now available to us. Again, we know all of this only because of the resurrection. So I want you to think about this as we look briefly. We're going to look very briefly at some words from Paul. That apostle who I alluded to in our story was so radically transformed and upended by the resurrection of Jesus. It's why, it's why he writes so beautifully about it in so many places. So what we're going to look at... Um, Briefly is Romans chapter 6. If you have a text with you, turn to that chapter right now. We're going to look at the verses 1 to 14. I'm going to read it in sections and comment on it. 
keep this, keep this story, this whole story I just told, keep that in the back of your mind as we, as we read this. And think about Paul. Think about that, that zealous Pharisee writing these words because he had been so upended by Jesus' resurrection. So in Romans 6, chapter 1, Paul writes, What then are we to say? Should we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? No, by no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too, listen to this, might walk in newness of life. See, the resurrection inaugurated, it launched, it opened up a new way. A whole new way of seeing the world, a new way of imagining and holding on to what is true, a new way of living our lives right now. See, there, there is an old way and a new way. The old way ends in death. The old way has no claim on an ultimate future hope. The old way has no imagination that there might be something even stronger than sin, than death, than evil. But the new way that we are invited to live in, to claim faith in, the new way calls us out of that old way. This is why Paul writes, should we continue to live in sin? No. Should we, should we live in sin as though the resurrection never happened? Should we live in the old way as though the resurrection never took place? No. That entire old way has been destroyed, has been shown up, has been shamed. Colossians says it's been shamed. The principalities and powers have been, have been put to shame. The whole old way has been destroyed so that we might, he's going to go on to say, so we might no longer live enslaved to sin. Now, clarification, word of clarification. As I say this, I'm not saying we should never, you better never sin anymore. I think we get confused about this sometimes. When I say we don't, we should not live in the old way, we should not live in a way that assumes the power of sin and death, we are exhorted not to live in it as though it is the most powerful thing. We're exhorted to live in it as though to, to no longer live in it as though sin has the last word. And this is why grace grips us. This is why grace grips us overall. Because yes, sin and death and evil, they still wreak havoc in our world. We're living in a pandemic, hopefully soon to be over pandemic. That is evidence of sin and evil's grasping, right? So of course, there's still things that happen. And of course, we are all going to be complicit in sin as we continue to live out our lives. I'm not saying that we can all live perfectly in our call to do that. What I am saying, I love how Bonhoeffer puts it. I I can't really put it better. He says that those who are gripped fully by the grace of Christ will be freed to live and act boldly, knowing that they might become sinners in the process of acting boldly because they know that they are forgiven because grace grips us all. So live in that freedom. Live in the liberation from the old way, knowing that grace is over all. Don't live as though the resurrection didn't happen. Don't live as though sin is the most powerful and defining thing. Let's continue in Paul's text. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. And listen, we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever had died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. 
Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As we are united to Christ in this way, we are called to live alive to God just as Jesus was alive to God. And this, I believe, I believe this is how the resurrection, it, it, it combines two important things here. It combines this future hope, something that we have um, confidence will happen. Paul elsewhere calls this the first fruits. Um, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, the first sign. The first fruits are the first kind of uh, signs that a crop is growing, right? The first harvest. The resurrection is the first fruits of what we will all eventually experience. So it's, yes, it's future-oriented. We look towards the resurrection in an ultimate sense. But it's also a current reality. Because the resurrection, as I've been really, really harping on this morning, the resurrection should change everything about how we view our current life, our current status, our current hope, our current convictions. It should indeed change how we view everything about how we view the world. Because as we see ourselves joined to Christ's new resurrected life, we, live, we can't help but live differently now. Our resurrection hope disrupts the old way of living. Because again, how can you go back to living as if there is no resurrection? This was certainly not possible for the followers of Jesus, right? As they saw him walk out of the tomb, they couldn't go back to living as though that didn't happen. It was impossible. This is why Paul says we walk in newness of life now. Now, a- a- an analogy. Imagine a, 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 someone who's incarcerated, an inmate, someone who's in, in prison. Imagine someone who knows, who knows that they are going to be released one day and who knows they have a loving family waiting for them. That person will live differently in that jail cell versus someone who has no hope on the other side, versus someone who has maybe a life sentence or nothing beyond their incarceration to hope for. Perhaps it's a crude analogy or a simplistic analogy, but I think it gets at this now and future-oriented reality that as we have this resurrection hope that pulls us into the future, it actually frees us to live boldly and freely now. It declares shame on sin. It declares shame on death and evil. All those things that try to get us to, to have a scarcity mindset or to hoard or to, be, or to hide. This, this ultimate disruptive future hope calls us out of all of that. It empties its power. All right, let's finish this text from Paul. Moving on in chapter 6. He says, Therefore, therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members or your limbs. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In the present, death to life now. Present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul says here, we must, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in doing so, Paul says we present our very limbs as instruments of God's resurrection power. And I think in this way, in this way, this newness of life, this resurrection hope, this powerful liberation, this freedom from the old way, this newness of life combines both what we think, our hopes, our beliefs, our convictions, our dreams, our faith, our, our, yeah, our ideas. It combines what we think and our actions, what we do, how we live, what risks we take, how we discipline ourselves. 
You can't tear these things apart, what we think and how we live, how we embody what we think. If you truly, it's simple if you think about it. If you truly believe and are convicted that the resurrection is reality, then you will live differently now in your embodied life. You will present your members, your body, physically to God uh, as, a, as instruments of righteousness instead of to sin as instruments of death. The Christian life, the, the life of faith is one of belief, of hope, ideas, and of embodied reality. It's not either or. And when those things combine, driven by the resurrection hope, we walk in newness of life now. We're moved out of that old way, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, in the midst of a world that is still racked by a lot of pain. Just like that, that's why I used the analogy of the inmate earlier, because the inmate may not be delivered from prison immediately, but he lives differently in that place now. So too are we called to live in this place. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, later on in this very same letter we're looking at, he says that, that creation itself is groaning, groaning for this liberation, like yearning for it on a guttural, visceral level. So too we walk in this place, in this newness of life, knowing that liberation has been declared and affected by the cross and the resurrection in the life of Jesus, but also living until before its future full consummation. In this way, all these things combine and produce the very newness of life. And it all depends, again, on the resurrection of Christ. It depends on him walking out of that tomb. Because that is where we plant our flag. That is where we stake all our hope. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, Corinthians, he says, uh, we would be the most foolish if Christ was not raised. We would be the most foolish, those of us who are trying to live this way, if he actually didn't walk out of that tomb. So in conclusion, today, is about celebration. I hope you can celebrate all day. <laughs> I hope that you can be with your families, your friends. Um, I hope that you can be with people and celebrate this newness of life as we move out of this gathering this morning. Because we celebrate a life that really is, really, really is only made possible through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. It's only possible through all of that. So my prayer for us is that this newness of life would grip us, would define us as a community. Even today, even this morning. I pray that we would bring resurrection hope to our city. To our towns, to our neighborhoods, to our places of work. I pray that we would be so utterly gripped by this that we would bring it it to our pandemic-ridden culture. That that is so shaken by sin and death and loneliness right now. May we be a community that is so full of this newness of life right now in this place. I pray that as we go from here, we would, we would present ourselves to God in both our belief, our ideas, our hopes, and our actions, our limbs, our embodied selves, and that we would all know we are ambassadors of resurrection hope to a hurting world that in many ways really does believe sin and death and evil are the most powerful things. That a world that really does believe they get the last word. And that as Wendell Berry says, we can, we can instead practice resurrection in all that we do and all that we say. That we would know that the kingdom is here, it has been launched, it has been affected, and that it is also coming to be fully realized one day. That we, Monsieur Day Church, can be united fully to God's love under the word of grace, Today, 
and forevermore as we move out of this place because one more time, he is risen. risen Amen. The Lord told us as we come to this table to, uh, to remember him every time that we do it. And uh, the question that comes into my mind is, you know, what is it that he would like us to remember? Obviously, himself, that's the primary thing. A central theme and one that we think about a lot when we come to the table is what he was willing to pay for our deliverance, our freedom. At the same mealtime, you may remember, the Lord washed his disciples' feet and then told them to do likewise. So as we come to this table, we take the bread, we take the cup, and we remember the Lord's great sacrifice for us and his calling on our lives to sacrifice for each other. We also remember why he did it, what he purchased with this broken body and his shed blood. At dinner that evening with his disciples, Jesus said, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant, you may recall, came through Moses, and it didn't lead to life. The reference to the new covenant draws us back to Jeremiah 31 where it's foretold, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and no longer will each one teach his neighbor and brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. So we come to this table, and we rejoice. Our captain, Our king went into the battle against our slave masters, sin and death, all by himself. And he won a great victory. He went into that grave, taking sin and death with him. And when he came out, they stayed there. Amen. And to those who believe, he gave the power to become sons and daughters of God, born of God. People of the new covenant, brothers and sisters to each other in a way that's more real and enduring, it's eternal, than the brothers and sisters that you grew up with in your in your families. So as you take this bread and you take this cup this morning, rejoice. Remember the Lord Jesus, your Savior, the very life of your soul, your brother and your friend. Remember him and say, hallelujah, which means praise God, Lord Jesus. Lift up your heart and your hands in praise and say, Father, turn to the right and the left and shout with joy to one another. Brother, sister, that's something you can say because he came out and because his body was broken and his blood was poured out. Hear the words of the Lord as you open your little packet now. Take the wafer off the top, if you will. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And hear the words of the Lord. This cup is poured out for you, and it's the new covenant in my blood. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he's risen. He's risen.